0: Welcome to The Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of The Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald, and with me today is Julie Surz. Surz was a former military analyst focusing on Central and South Asia for the Defense Intelligence Agency, as well as being a confidant to the late co-leader of the Northern Alliance, Ahmed Shah Massoud. Uh, She's currently working at Boone Carlsberg, a law firm based in Montana, I, thank you very much for coming on, Sir Julie. Yeah,
1: thank you for having me.
0: So let's let's make it simple. Um, the first question: uh, How would you get started with the defense intelligence agency?
1: Yeah, so I uh, yeah I've been really interested in international politics starting from when I was a teenager. I was interested in in joining one of the the many intelligence agencies that we had even back then in the '90s. And when I graduated from college, which was in 1992, that was the end of the Cold War, so there was a lot of restructuring going on. It took me a little while before I could get hired somewhere, but eventually DIA hired me in 95, I think more because of some of the study I had done of Persian, Parsi and Dari, than than the Russian skills that I graduated from college with, but yeah, eventually they hired me, and I became an intelligence officer was my title. I was primarily an analyst, but I would do some travel to the region and get some firsthand experiences, and and that's what I did with DIA.
0: How did you become situated in Afghanistan, and why did this country so interest you so much?
1: Yeah, it predated my time at DIA. As Like I said, as a teenager, I was really interested in world affairs. I Followed closely the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. I was very impressed when the, the Afghans ousted the, the Red Army and you know, with the downfall of the Soviet Union not long after that and their role in contributing to that. So I was really interested in Afghanistan. I greatly admired those Afghans who who had fought against the Soviets and then tried to create a government afterwards. And then by the time I was at DIA, the, the Taliban had come onto the scene and already were showing signs of the same excesses that that they have now and in terms of their uh, repression of of women and and minorities and and a lot of their extremism and some of these same former Afghan Mujahideen were now fighting the Taliban so Mm -hmm. I was still interested in in that conflict and really wanted to get into Afghanistan to meet with some of them.
0: You know, there is so much, there's very little is known about the Defense Intelligence Agency. Uh, why does it attract uh, less attention than, say, the CIA?
1: Well, I think it's it's a smaller organization. It, it's grown larger after 9-11. Uh, but, you know, I think still compared to the CIA, it's, it's relatively small. It's kind of an interesting mix of you know especially when i was there 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 were some active duty military a lot of uh, civilian analysts who were former military and then some individuals like myself who didn't have any military experience um so so we were yeah kind of an interesting mix i mm-hmm. guess and i i suspect cia does not have the the sort of pr department that that the cia seems to have that that gets them in the news sometimes sometimes good sometimes bad i guess but mm-hmm. they I think sometimes they try to shape the stories. I, I think the CIA has, has a good relationship with a number of journalists and help, helps drive certain narratives, but the CIA doesn't seem to be as involved in that sort of thing. And and seems more content to kind of fly under the radar. I think. Right,
0: let's get to the, the meat of the questions. So the <laughs> CIA was undergoing internal changes, which allowed for them to focus more so on bin Laden in the mid 1990s, but got rid of the, many of the middle management field officers which was a complaint within the CIA. Uh, was the DIA undergoing similar changes at this time? The
1: DIA at that time and in, in the 90s was going through a number of structural changes, uh, you know, kind of trying to, to figure out its its place in the post-Cold War world. Um, it went through a number of reorganizations. I, I would say probably less focused though or, or less specific to the the perceived threat from from bin Laden himself, but but I think aware of of the threat of terrorism, especially from Islamist Mm -hmm. extremists. Um, But I I don't think it was driven by that. It was more just trying to to do sort of a a post-Cold War makeover and figure out what would make sense.
0: When the Taliban came into power in 1996, what was the stance at the DIA regarding Afghanistan at this point?
1: Yeah, I think Afghanistan was regarded by most at at DIA, and I would say the other intelligence agencies as well, as still sort of a backwater. Bin Laden himself was the focus of some attention, but in terms of how he'd fit into what most regarded as a civil war in Afghanistan, there wasn't a lot of attention to that. There wasn't a lot of interest in who the the players still were in Afghanistan. Uh, So, yeah, I I would say there there wasn't a whole lot of of interest. I wouldn't say there was an official position, though I think there were a few individuals. I think there were some lobbyists in D.C. uh, who were trying to make the Taliban look a little better than they were in in the hopes that they could push this line that now Afghanistan will be stable, it's open for investment, particularly energy investment. I think that line was being pushed, but I think a lot of people in the intelligence agencies sort of took a a wait-and-see attitude.
0: When did you first meet with Ahmed Shah Massoud, by the way?
1: Um, so that would have been in, I guess, 1998. Um, that was my second trip into Afghanistan. The first trip um, was in Taliban areas, so I wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't able to, <laughs> to meet him right. then. But yeah, so 1998, October 1998 was, was when I, I made the first trip into the areas that were controlled by uh, Massoud's forces.
0: Just a to follow-up today. What, what was your uh, overall assessment of the man?
1: I was very impressed. You know, He had quite the reputation that, that preceded him and and I would say he lived up to it. It was really amazing all that he had com- accomplished against the, the Soviet Union. And then in, in the very difficult efforts to, to try to form a government in that sort of interim period and then to be sort of the last one standing fighting against the, the Taliban and, and trying to, to keep up the morale of, of his forces and kind of hold the line against this even you know newer version of, of Islamic extremism that was represented by the Taliban and bin Laden. He was very remarkable.
0: Well, speaking of bin Laden, bin Laden arrives in Afghanistan in 1996 when he is forced to leave the Sudan. Um, were there any reports by the Defense Intelligence Agency regarding bin Laden at this point in time? And did the Intelligence Committee share any data with you regarding his profile?
1: Um, you know, there there was, Collegiality among analysts to some extent uh, Afghanistan like I said itself wasn't a, a very high priority and that was kind of what I was interested in even more than uh, kind of bin Laden himself as a, as a counter-terrorist threat but I know I, I wrote a, a bit on it on mm-hmm. you know how bin Laden's arrival might impact the, the Afghan forces fighting inside Afghanistan and the Taliban in particular and, and what it could mean for the Taliban to uh, embrace him, which they showed early signs of doing, and they consistently did so afterwards. So, um, I think I think Bin Laden, though, as a topic, even from a counterterrorist perspective, tended to be somewhat divorced from his Afghan context. Is my uh, sense from from my time in the intelligence community?
0: Did they consider him a threat at all at that at this point? He was
1: considered a threat. You know, he had been implicated in the, I think it was 1993 attempt to bomb the World Trade Center. Right. Um, you know, and then certainly by the time that uh, I went to Afghanistan in 98, that was shortly after the, the embassy bombings in Africa that, that were well-coordinated and very devastating. So, I, I, he, he was regarded as a threat.
0: Okay, Unical, which is the Union Oil Company of California, and Unical Corporation made a tentative deal with the Taliban to build um, a $4.5 billion pipeline network to transport Caspian Sea oil and gas across Afghanistan to the Indian subcontinent. But the plan was scrapped when the Clinton administration bombed suspected Al Qaeda training camps in the country. Uh, Massoud had suspected Unical was financing the Taliban. So this is a two part question how did this deal materialize and did Unical fund the taliban to capture the country's capital called kabul
1: that is like you said something that that masood said and, and i i think he based that a, opinion on solid intelligence that he had i i never saw the you know specifically hmm. what what the intelligence was or, or asked him specifically how my understanding is he had a good network of, of individuals, you know, basically informers who who would tell him things and, and that would have been true from, from the period of the 1980s. So I don't really have any reason to doubt his sources and and but he seemed very convinced, I think from multiple sources that the, that UNICAL was spreading money around that helped the Taliban advance on Kabul and elsewhere in the in the country in, in that lead up. So uh, I I my professional opinion would be that he was correct in that. And certainly UNICAL was spending a lot of money around Washington around the same time, so it would make sense.
0: Yeah, if you could assess approximately how much you think they were. You know, in
1: Afghanistan, it might not have taken a lot. Um, You know, probably a million or less, I think, would have made a, a big difference to convince people to flip sides and or just walk away. Which, which is my understanding of what happened and why the Taliban were able to advance so quickly.
0: Right, okay. and you, you know, it's funny that you bring up switch sides. In other words, I want to follow this up because the Afghans are notorious for flipping sides when the money is right. Um, yes. yeah, some, <laughs> some of them right. have that,
1: that, that reputation, that is
0: true, yes. You, you came into pertinent information from captured Al-Qaeda operatives that Ariana Airlines was funneling drugs and money to the Taliban. Uh, this is a remarkable story could you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah it was really from a, a variety of sources I, I don't remember specifically which ones and and but it was even after I had left diA so I feel comfortable talking about it because it wasn't classified at least when I learned of it but right. yeah that, that there was kind of this uh, network of um you know, foreign uh, outside arms and fighters to some extent that would come into Afghanistan and, and then the, the flights would leave loaded up with, uh, you know, opium or, you know, various degrees of, of processed heroin and, and go to usually the, the UAE and back was where the air bridge seemed to, to be from. And then money or other supplies that the Taliban needed would, would come in on those flights too.
0: What Was the Gulf behind that as well?
1: It's it's always a little hard to know. You know, there are a lot of very wealthy individuals in the Gulf. Some of them probably do that as, as more of a that being support for the, the Taliban probably are involved as a result of, of their own private beliefs. But at the time there were only three governments that recognized the Taliban, and that was Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and UAE. So right. I, I don't think it's a big coincidence that that UAE was was very Crucial in, in forming that air bridge. And of course, Pakistan played its, its very direct role in, in providing safe haven to the Taliban and as well as a substantial
0: source of fighters. When you talk about Pakistan, we're we talking about the ISI?
1: Yes, I, I would say, you know, even beyond the ISI, there was just a very robust network in Pakistan from, from madrasas and various operatives to even the regular Pakistani military that seemed to send in individuals to, to help out the Taliban at, at key points and and to basically be embedded with them uh, often on either on the battlefield or I, I think to some extent, even with some of their government functions.
0: Right. Because this is important because um, uh, another follow-up is that the Taliban are from Pakistan. Mullah Omar is from Pakistan. Uh, most of the Taliban fires that came in to the Afghanistan during the Soviet Union came from the uh, madrasas in uh, Islamabad and uh, Peshawar. Um, It is reported that the Saudi head of the GID, Prince Turkey bin Faisal, had met with uh, high-ranking Taliban leadership, specifically Mullah Omar, and wished for him to relinquish bin Laden to the kingdom or the Americans so they could prosecute him, but the Taliban refused this offer. Um, If you are aware of this proposal, can you speak on this a little more?
1: yeah, I'm not directly aware of it. I've certainly heard that and don't have any reason to to say that that's not true. I, I think, you know, kind of like I was saying earlier, it's it's hard to sort of sort out who's doing what in any mm-hmm. given country and what's government policy or not. Um, you know, I, I think it's certainly feasible that if if there were someone, trying to work with the United States um, on that it would be someone like Prince Turkey with with whom the the. US had a long relationship um, but you know I, I suspect there were others who supported the Taliban in Saudi Arabia and elsewhere that would have convinced the Taliban make to make it worth their while to not turn him over so yeah I, I but, th- but that story is is highly Plausible and 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 I think is generally accepted as is very likely true now.
0: Right now, I'll, I'll just get your opinion to follow up on that. Um, the uh, the, uh, the excuses were that the Taliban were following old Pashtun laws that even predate Islam. That's the reason why they didn't hand over Bin Laden. And also too was that the if they did hand over Bin Laden to the West or to Israel, uh, it would have a negative effect from the Muslim world itself and. They would condemn the Taliban. Would you agree with something like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think there was ever ever any idea that they would turn over Bin Laden to to Israel, curiously, then he never targeted Israel. It was usually Saudi Arabia or or the US in the Gulf. Um, But even, I I think you're right that within the Muslim world and his natural allies, you know that the Taliban would not look good if they turned him over, but there there would probably be some face-saving things they could do um, to, to make that a little easier. I I don't believe their excuse that it was some sort of you know pushed in hospitality was for the reason that they weren't turning him over. They certainly, you know, at times to guests if they didn't like him, they'd throw him out of helicopters or kill them. Or <laughs> they they yeah could be very selective in, in exercising that hospitality. I think it was much more a shared extremist vision and and the genuine help that bin Laden gave them. I, I think they were closely allied ideologically so that the Taliban did not want to turn him over.
0: Right, and he also served, that's a great point that you raised, uh, mm-hmm. he also served a uh, as a money financier as well. So I guess the Taliban, much like in the way of the Sudan of the Hassan al-Tarabi of mm-hmm. the National Islamic Front, where they you know, scavenged any type of money. I think Bin Laden spent like over $70 million in the Sudan. And then he was expelled. He was pretty angry about that as well. So you meet with Massoud in August of 98. What was the nature of this meeting? And were the DIA as split as the CIA regarding Massoud?
1: Well, so it was October 98. Um, and, you know, the... It wasn't, I wouldn't say it was widely known within DIA that I was going over there. You know, I I think, and and this was more reflective of how the US regarded Afghanistan at the time. Somewhat surprisingly, in retrospect, it wasn't a country that that someone with a security clearance was forbidden from going to,
0: Hmm.
1: Um, and was, you know, even a place potentially you could put an official trip together there it's, it's kind of for boring bureaucratic reasons that I think that it, it wasn't better known um, that I was going but but again partly that was because it, it was you know but a place that that analysts could travel to whether on their own time or, or to some extent on their official time, even though that was very rare at, at the, the time. so, um, I I think within DIA and and the individuals who knew I was going, I I think they, like myself, viewed it as a good opportunity to get information. I think the political ramifications were at a higher level and probably less from from DIA. I I think CIA ended up being somewhat neutral. Uh, The individuals who were involved with Afghanistan at the State Department at that time seemed to be particularly upset about the message that it it might send. We were trying to be, I think, neutral in in the the war between Massoud and and the Taliban. Um, you know, the State Department didn't see the the need to try to get additional information on on that issue. So, um, but yeah, I think maybe as you described some of the differences of opinions within other agencies. It, Led to, uh, I think maybe some surprise when others learned about the trip, but but not a particularly strong reaction to my knowledge from from any entity other than other agency other than the State Department. It's
0: this is the question that really kills me because you know if he just had a little bit more because he goes to the United Nations I think uh, uh, United Nations Security Council and he argues for help from the global community about trying to fight against the Taliban. Um, and the the CIA basically just uh, almost stood out of it. and um uh, if he just had to help, maybe, do you think he could have taken over uh, and beaten the Taliban if he got the help?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was certainly what he wanted in nineteen ninety eight and and onward, and I would say even even before that too you know he realized even when i think many americans didn't even americans who, who were focused on this issue he realized that that the taliban were essentially an enemy of the united states that they were ideologically allied with with bin laden that having them uh, you know have a safe haven for for bin laden just let al qaeda plot and plan against the united states and he was very much perceived as an enemy by both the Taliban and bin Laden too. So in other words, like during the the period of of shared interests when the Soviets were in Afghanistan, he saw this as as a similar instance when we could band together and and give his his forces some support, mainly just money. I, I mean, I don't think he ever contemplated or would have wanted any actual US forces in Afghanistan. Um, but even diplomatic support, like, like I said, only three countries recognized the Taliban, pretty much the entire rest of the world reco- recognized the government of which Massoud was a part. Uh, but, but the U.S. did not recognize that government. It was led nominally by Burhanuddin by Rabbani, and then Massoud was more the political mm-hmm. leader. Even just giving diplomatic support would have been a powerful signal um, and then providing some financial support certainly would have been helpful too. And and I to answer your question, I, I do think if he had had that, especially earlier on, you know, like we were talking about earlier, even just relatively small amounts of of money in Afghanistan combined with some momentum can cause a pretty dramatic shift in the on the ground situation. So yes, I think he could have. It would have taken an, ally, an alliance with a number of others in Afghanistan. But but yes, I, I think he could have pushed out the Taliban.
0: Hmm. Okay, you you returned from Afghanistan, and suddenly you are met with criticisms and then a suspension from the DIA, even though you had the clearance to travel to Afghanistan. Talk about what happened to you, and why were you met with such hostility from upper management from DIA?
1: Yeah, I think it, it was because upper management at DIA didn't realize I had gone uh, when they became aware of it, which was from an outside agency. I I, I think it was the State Department. Uh, I think initially they denied it when th- that I had clearance to go at least. And then when they found that I had, I, I think that embarrassed them and they became even more upset. Um, you know, I don't know that they really got into the, the politics of it so much as that you know, they certainly didn't see any benefit to it, which which is what I disputed it at the time, and would still now. We we didn't have a lot of information about Afghanistan. That was part of what motivated me to go, and and I did think that the information that I brought back, I found it very important as as an analyst and very relevant. But they didn't seem to be interested in that, and and my understanding, especially since that time, talking to others who weren't involved in, at the time, even in individuals uh, with the CIA, for example, really just had a very narrow focus on trying to get information solely about bin Laden. Didn't We're, were told really to avoid or ignore some of the larger implications of, of the Taliban and Massoud's fight and how bin Laden was manipulating that, really siding with the Taliban and, and how there was a lot more going on and that what otherwise appeared to be a civil war, the involvement of Pakistan, for example, that there was a lot more going on in Afghanistan at the time than simply that bin Laden had sought refuge there.
0: Um, it, it seemed the upper levels of management, the State Department, the CIA, and the DIA were almost protective of the Taliban regarding your data collection, which you amassed from the country in the two weeks while you were there. Do you think this was the case?
1: I. I there definitely were some individuals who would have preferred that the Taliban just take over the country, not have to focus on, like you said, the potential that, that Massoud was there, that he could be aided, that he could fight the Taliban. There, there were a number of people who didn't want to get involved with that. Like I, I said, at, around that time, which was 98, 99, UNICAL was still hoping that they could, uh, you know, burnish the Taliban's image somewhat, um, you know, and, and and come back from what was so far their their failed effort to, to get that pipeline in place. I, I think there were still individuals who were supportive of those efforts, even though they were, like you said, largely put on ice after the,
0: mm. the
1: 1998 U.S. missile strikes against the Taliban or certain Taliban areas.
0: Had the the CIA and the DIA back Masood, oh, I actually have a question. What, what, let me ask you another one. Uh, what would you think have happened to bin Laden and Al-Qaeda if the Taliban had been defeated?
1: I think they would have gone to, to Pakistan like, like they did post 9-11. Um, you know, but bin Laden obviously has some friends there and some powerful protection mm. where, where he was able to remain. Um, You know, I don't know what other ties he might have had in other countries around that time that might have been an alternative, but I would say certainly Pakistan was probably uh, was certainly the logical place for for him to seek refuge, which is eventually what he did.
0: Two days before September 11, 2001, Masood is assassinated and he's assassinated by two Al-Qaeda operatives posing as media where a camera they were using had a planted bomb inside of it that exploded and he was killed. What were your thoughts when this happened?
1: When I heard he was assassinated, I I did assume that it was bin Laden when I met with him, you know, as early as 1998 and and then the, the several times I met with him after that, he knew that bin Laden was trying to kill him. So. Uh, that wasn't a surprise. Um, you know, after that, I, I guess my next thought was concern of, of how the resistance against the Taliban would be able to continue with Masood's death because he really was the, the glue, I think that held them together. Um, he was the most inspirational figure and and a very much a natural leader. So that was, was my concern after that was what was going to happen to those areas af- of Afghanistan that were free of the Taliban, uh, the people living there. You know what would happen to them, and and then just the whole concept of of resistance. How would it be able to continue in his absence?
0: What are you? All right. Fast forward to the present day Afghanistan. Um, the Taliban are back. Uh, it seems they've taken control of the country now. Is this a different Taliban from the Taliban you saw in the early nineties?
1: I don't think so. Um, you know, I, I think they might be a little more media savvy now, um, but I think they're still just as repressive. I, I think they are still a threat. Um, you know, I don't know what the ability of, of the Afghans will be to organize a resistance to them. I think eventually that will grow. I'm, I'm not sure in what form, but the Afghans do have a, a strong history of of mobilizing to to forces that are repressive, and I think the Taliban, in in many ways, to many Afghans at least, still seem like a foreign backed force. Mm. The foreigners, in this case, being Pakistan. I I think many Afghans still bristle at that and and don't trust the Taliban, don't like them. I'm not sure, like I said, how long it will will take to. For that to be organized, obviously there are some elements, including some individuals who were around Ahmad Shah Massoud and his own son, um, from when the Taliban were, were first around. But, but I think those, I, I think that re- resistance will eventually organize and grow.
0: Do you think the United States made a mistake by pulling out without having, uh, without allowing just the Taliban to take over the country completely so quickly?
1: You know, we had been there for 20 years. I, I think the the mistakes that we made were probably made early on in in that 20 year period, creating trying to create an army that that looked like an army we would recognize, as opposed to an army that would be a better fit for Afghanistan, that would rely more on on locals. Um, you know, the fact that that a lot of those Afghan soldiers didn't seem to have been paid for very long, and were therefore relatively easy to for the Taliban to manipulate. I think by the time we had had drawn down our, our forces to what they were this year and uh, you know a number of the Taliban had been released, I, I think it would have been difficult to come back from that deal that was made under the prior administration and you know, I think 20 years for most Americans was was more than enough. Um, like, like I said, it, it's certainly never something that, Massoud would have wanted or, or even contemplated, I think we would have been better off from the beginning identifying Afghans that we could rely on and trust to form a more genuinely organic Afghan organization and, and government. And, and I hope we'll support whatever resistance eventually gets organized uh, because I, I think that will be genuinely Afghan uh, and And we could play a, a helpful role with that, but but I don't think having u s forces there is is good for Americans or or really in the long run, good for Afghans either.
0: Um, just, just another question on that. Is that um because it's it just seems that this would be like a reciprocating problem with Afghanistan that will always have an involvement at some level keeping the Taliban alive because they they are now they're in full force it's shocking do you think al qaeda will make a rebound while this is happening you know
1: al qaeda's been through a lot in the last 20 years it, it's it's interesting to see that the taliban seem to to like i said i think the taliban are just as extreme and bad as they were before but but they seem to be dealing now with an even more extremist Hmm. terrorist group in in terms of of ISIS. So that is a very interesting and different development um, that that potentially we could maybe even use to our advantage. I I think as long as the Taliban are off balance, I, I think they would be reluctant to make, at least consciously, Afghanistan the sort of safe haven that it was for bin Laden in the 1990s, leading up to to 2001. I think they're going to have their hands full trying to govern, and and it's again not because I think they're ideologically any better, but they're dealing with with their own rivalries and and challenges now that I I think in some ways would make that more difficult. And of of course, you know, leading up to this year and and for many years, the Taliban have had areas of Afghanistan that they controlled. And they did not seem to, you know, quickly make that into a, a safe haven for Al Qaeda, for example, even when they've had the chance for a few years now. So I think that dynamic is a little different now, but it's certainly worth keeping an eye on and seeing what other extremist threats might might arise from Afghanistan. But that's, that's been going on for a number of years already.
0: Well, you're talking about the Islamic State in Khorasan that's fighting with the, the Taliban yes. at the current mm-hmm. rate. Right. Um, yes. my, my last question to you, Julie, um, you, you know, me and, me and Richard we were talking and, um, he brought up an interesting point. You were very young when you went to Afghanistan. It's almost shocking because you look like you were about 22 in that old, in the old picture, <laughs> and you're very young right now. So we were, we were asking you, how old were you when you first went
1: to Afghanistan? <laughs> oh, thanks for the compliment, I guess. No, I was, uh, yeah, so the first time I went to Afghanistan was in 1997. I was 27 years old. So
0: oh my yeah, okay. I, I was
1: relatively young, a little older than 22.
0: we were, <laughs> were, were you the were you one of the youngest analysts at the DIA at the
1: point? I think so. Probably yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, there there weren't a lot of analysts there who didn't have some prior military experience. Uh, they were just starting to to bring people like myself in. So yeah, I was I was one of the youngest. That's
0: Well, listen, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show and uh, answering these questions. Julie, thank you very much.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me.